0: Welcome. This is Alexia Hudson-Ward, the Editor-in-Chief of Toward Inclusive Excellence, or TIVE for short, a multimedia blog hosted by CHOICE, a publishing unit of the Association of College and Research Libraries, a division of the American Library Association. We explore equity, diversity, inclusion, and accessibility issues that affect the higher education community. Among the goals of this channel is the development of a pool of knowledge and actionable resources for information professionals, undergraduates, faculty of all disciplines, campus staff and administrators at every level seeking to understand racism and discrimination from new perspectives and to promote social justice on their campuses and within their communities we are excited to welcome you to our podcast series that borrows its name from the higher education academic calendar. Therefore, you are listening to Ty's Spring Semester. Our second spring semester podcast features an interesting interview with Dr. Michelle Duffy. Dr. Duffy is the Vernon Heath Chair in the Department of Work and Organizations in the Carlson School of Management at the University of Minnesota. She has a PhD in Organizational Behavior and Human Resource Management from the University of Arkansas and a Master's in Psychology from Xavier University. Her research focuses on the ways in which employee emotions and affect influences organizational outcomes the antecedents and consequences of antisocial behavior at work, and the role of micro interventions in improving employee well being and organizational life. Her current projects include a focus on resume fraud, employee envy, effective balance, and mindfulness. She is the associate editor for the Journal of Applied Psychology and a former associate editor of the journal of management her work has been published in journals such as the journal of applied psychology the academy of management journal organizational behavior and human decision processes and personnel psychology she received the Herbie award for excellence in teaching in 2007 and the carlson school of management award for service in 2011. she became An SIOP and APA fellow in 2012, and served as the PhD program coordinator for the Department of Work and Organizations until 2016. Professor Duffy teaches a range of courses at Carlson, including negotiations, organizational behavior, leading others, and organizational behavior for executives. During our conversation, we discuss the vital role micro-interventions play in positive workplace engagements and how team members at every level must play a role in ensuring healthy workplace practices. In the midst of our conversation, Dr. Duffy's cat unexpectedly joins us and begins touting his human mom's insights. It was quite evident to us that he is very proud of her. Now, to our conversation with Dr. Michelle Duffy. Dr. Duffy, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I find your research focus on the role of micro-interventions in improving employee well-being and organizational life intriguing. So would you discuss with our audience what a micro-intervention is and what insights have you determined about their positive impact within the workplace? Sure. So I like to think about micro-interventions
1: as short exercises that people can do at work or before work or after work. And we want them to be kind of bite-sized or micro. We want them to be relevant to the person so that they want to do it or relevant to the context they're in. And then we want them to be accessible in some way so that people keep doing them. And so kind of in contrast to thinking if I wanna make a change in myself, Or if I want as a leader to see changes in my workplace that, you know, I, maybe it doesn't have to be a major training program or a year long set of exercises. What if we can change behavior or change attitudes and outcomes with something really tiny that people can do in a few minutes each day?
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's
1: how I like to think about the micro interventions in those different ways hmm.
0: Yeah, thank you. Um, because it sounds as if so much of your research identifies microaggressions as like one of several organizational impact levers, if you will, that managers can, in essence, deploy to improve workplace engagement. Uh, is there a natural connection between successfully leveraging micro interventions with incorporating mindfulness at work?
1: You know, I think there is, if I'm, if I'm understanding kind of where you're going with this. So mindfulness and meditation, these micro interventions, they're small. You can do something like think about three good things for yourself. You can meditate on loving kindness. You could do a walking meditation. So there are, I mean, so many, I could just go on and on of accessible mindfulness practices that can be really relevant to any context in the workplace. Mm -hmm. And we know that they have a really big impact. So, I mean, like all micro interventions, there's a pretty, I would call it almost a disproportionate impact, like that you could do something three minutes a day and find yourself having more energy, um, less abusive supervision, less depletion, and that's powerful. And then in mindfulness, you know, we see pretty strong effects of mindfulness interventions in many forms, even in something like four minutes a day. You know, we don't have to do a big sit on a pillow and meditate. It can be tiny and really specific to the context.
0: Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm really thinking about and this is really wonderful context. I'm thinking about how managers could encourage or support these types of micro interventions. And so, um, can you think of some examples or provide some suggestions on, you know, if I'm a manager that wants to pivot the conversation and practices within my organization away from microaggressions to more positive micro interactions? What are some of the strategies or things that I could deploy in order for that to happen effectively?
1: Effectively, yeah. So I think I have a pretty long-winded answer here. So oh, um, great, good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, because it's it's such an important issue, and you know, I think there are I would call them things like that we should probably stop doing first, you know, and then things that we can start doing. So you know, if I'm kind of backing up to thinking about with the microaggressions and negative micro engagements, you know, I think a really basic thing that may sound obvious, but I think sometimes it's not for people is that we have to stop minimizing that they're happening. Mm -hmm. And I do find that, I mean, you know, and I, many of us probably, you know, probably myself included have had at times the temptation to say, oh, that's just an individual problem oh, that's just a personal problem and they're not. And we need to stop saying like, this is your problem or this is a personal problem or this is a relationship problem. So these kind of negative engagements are not things we should normalize in the workplace. We shouldn't Mm -hmm. allow them to fester by normalizing them. And so, you know, and then I think if we can get to that point of really taking the impact of these kind of behaviors seriously, which I think actually can be a pretty big step for some places. Mm-hmm. I think there are things that managers, leaders, supervisors can do, you know, broadly and small. So, you know, one thing I like to talk about is starting really simply with asking ourselves, like, what is the way that we hear people? And what are the ways mm. that we don't? And what, in what ways are we not hearing people talk?
0: Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And that
1: kind of, that goes back to, I mean, in some ways it's very just related to what I've said, but I just, in my own research, but also in many others, I think I've seen definitely positive listening. I mean, absolutely for sure. I've also seen people that simply either won't hear another person's experience or see it or believe it because it didn't happen to them. And so, mm-hmm. you know, they may not say anything negative or they may not be actively, actively destructive, but you can't fix this problem if you're not willing to hear from the people that are experiencing different aggressions at work. Right. And then, Yep. Right. And so you need to like be thinking, okay, this may be not my experience, but I need to hear what they're saying. Not assume because I didn't have it, then somehow I know better. Or another thing we do, I think that people are trying to be kind, but they might, you know, I don't know if I'm assigning a motive that's not appropriate, but I, I do hear people saying things like, um, oh, you know, these people are jerks to everybody. Or,
0: yes. <laughs> right? yes. Like, oh my gosh. Yes. yes.
1: Yeah. So that, and I'm sure that maybe they're trying to make the person feel better, but instead they're just, not hearing their experience and the pain it's causing as if it's well then it's okay right so that's fine then because it's everybody so those are two things i mean i think that is actually i think that's pretty hard work and to be thinking okay how am i hearing people and how am i not as a leader and then you know another way i think about it is what you know as a leader or actually just anybody in a workplace you know what do you think is driving these kind of negative interactions and there are a lot of different drivers, but, and for different people, there may be different pushes for them to act this way, but I think we can kind of put them in, you know, a different, you know, in kind of a bucket of context that is kind of helpful to think about. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, one thing is like, before we even get into individuals, what's, what is going on in your workplace climate? And so, we want people to be able to feel safe speaking up against microaggressions and negative micro interactions. Mm-hmm. And we know that bystanders see these, and that a lot of times they don't speak up, they don't know what to do, or they're afraid of repercussions if they do. And mm-hmm. Those don't even have to be big repercussions. So somebody could say, oh, well, in our workplace, you know, we would never fire somebody or we would never penalize them. But there are other ways you can penalize people that even as adults, you know, we want validation, we want connection, or we don't want to be ostracized. And if you have a climate that's not very safe for people to openly speak, you know, I think that's one thing to think about what is my climate communicating to people? Is this a place where people could even push back on these behaviors um, Mm -hmm. and voice? And then another kind of more broad thing is just, I always encourage people to think about, okay, kind of like, what are your policies in the organization? Mm -hmm. What are your norms? And because we know these things trickle down, like people don't just live in a vacuum. And so, you know, and I think that, You know, people don't necessarily even think about. I I think some well anyway. I'm not gonna. I'm gonna kind of opinionize, and I'm not going to. But like, let me give me like. Well, can I give this? I'll give this example.
0: Yeah, please. (laughs) No, please go right ahead.
1: (laughs) Um, I was asked to as part of kind of a team building and to have student engagement with like MBA students to join faculty and students in a football stadium. And the students would line up on either side. And then I'm like a 53 year old woman and maybe then I was 50, but whatever. And I was asked mm-hmm. to run kind of through these lines of, of students while they cheered and kind of patted me. And oh, I felt really, I felt really uncomfortable. I felt really awkward. And, I thought about other people and who would have been in this cohort who are like even older than I am, maybe have some physical disabilities. Yeah. And what that meant for them to have to do this, and the organizers, it, I don't think it was it wasn't negative intent. It was just they didn't think beyond mm-hmm. we're we are young people and men, and so we're comfortable and this is kind of fun, right? So it's things like that, I think that can communicate who is valued and who's not, even if it's subtle
0: Mm -hmm, or mm -hmm.
1: maybe you have a faculty workshop or a staff workshop with lunch and you bring in food and it's Ramadan or, you know, it's a fasting day. You know, that's like, I mean, I love food, but maybe you haven't even thought. So I feel like I'm kind of going on and on, but I think It's thinking about what are you doing in the context of your work that might be communicating to the broader group of people who's valuable, who's not, and how do we include people?
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You've raised so many um, interesting and compelling points in relation to, particularly in the academy, right, like how we struggle with yeah. the co-location of positive micro interactions with what seems to be in many places, regrettably, part of its like standard operating practice of participating in microaggressions. And something you said really resonated with me, um, Michelle, was this this idea of kind of giving people a pass to be a cervic, right? Like that's yeah. just how who they are.
1: <laughs> and
0: yes. and to be able to uh, for someone who doesn't necessarily feel powerful in an organization, right? How are they going to be able to express concerns about that if the person that is perpetuating that behavior has more positional authority or more power than them within, you know, the academy within higher education? I think a lot about, you know, support staff in various functions. I think a lot about you know you had mentioned graduate students and and yeah. faculty that are often on the tenure track and not yet tenured yeah. and I'm really interested in hearing um from you how or what should the pivot point be for us you know those of us who who manage and you know manage teams at what point do we help to foster like self advocacy strategies or what are some of the things that we can really do? To help individuals who don't necessarily feel that they have voice, agency, authority, or power within the academy, how can we help them you know to address these microaggressions? Because I, I know for a fact, they tend to happen a lot of times outside of the manager's gaze. So we don't see it or hear about it until it has you know festered negatively in a way where regrettably, we'll end up losing a good team member. Or some other things will happen. So I'm really interested in hearing. Do you have any ideas for us around how can we kind of cut it off at the path, if possible?
1: You know, I think part of it is yeah, we have to speak up. If you have the power, especially if you have tenure, and being yes. willing to speak up. Um, and that I think even people with tenure sometimes, depending on their circumstances, may not feel they have that power. But really, looking out for, real, you know. Okay, so for example, sometimes I don't feel like I have a ton of power, right? And mm-hmm, then I'll think, wait, mm-hmm. you were at I might like, all say, Michelle Duffy, you were a tenured professor, you were a full professor, right? You, know, you, you can and should be looking out for your younger colleagues. And you know, one of the ways this came up was broadly for our um, school was how are we supporting our younger colleagues or more junior colleagues, I should say, who have just worked through this pandemic on top Mm -hmm. of everything else with young children um, who are unvaccinated, not able to go places and advocating for them and being willing to say, to stand up and say, you know, again, this is not a personal problem for them. We are a team. They have been struggling. And that, if I can just say, like, I want to normalize this that, yeah, people have, they have children, right? Right. And they get sick. And they miss work and they're struggling and they're anxious and they're worn out. And there's nothing shameful about that. And that's right. I think that normalization of saying, this is. Absolutely, how we would expect it to be, and not a sign of incredible dysfunction, and really having a, their backs just even not just emotionally, but in terms of policies. So, mm-hmm. we just ask mm-hmm. for our junior colleagues to be given extra tenure time, we ask them to have reduced teaching loads as they come off COVID. We've asked them, um, the university, to one of the things we ask for, for grant money. To help kind of support and reboost their research. I mean, these are just ideas, but I think mm. mm-hmm. that they could be applied like in different ways, right, to different places. I think I got lost in my thoughts there,
0: but yeah. no, no yeah. but they're all good thoughts. No worries. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I get it. And you raised another um, interesting piece that leads into another question for me around how COVID has shifted so much of how. The, um, the pre-COVID work engagements and work experiences have happened, right? It's really smashed yeah. at the smithereens, like some of those incidental occasions through which micro-interventions from a positive perspective could happen, like in break rooms or in hallways, yeah. have now really been replaced with engagements from afar, you know, using Zoom or Teams or other types of video conferencing technology. Um, So how can we really ensure uh, that positive micro engagements are incorporated into like everyday work existence? So like regardless as to where you work or how you work, you know, what are the ways in which we can strengthen positive micro engagements? Um, engagements more, you definitely gave some good ideas around supporting faculty, but I'm really interested in hearing some more. This is really good stuff. Yeah, it's such an
1: interesting question because I have this sense that I hear a lot of people in administrate, like higher up people, they're almost like a panic or that the workplace is falling apart because... Yes. Right. And, and I think it's just because it's new, right? And so we have to find new ways of doing things. And I mean, one, just kind of like the answer to my other question, one thing I've been thinking about is first, let's just start with some acceptance that this is how it is. It's probably how it's going right. to be for a while. Mm-hmm. And I think it's normal to kind of more in how things quote unquote used to be for some people. But okay, you know what, this is what it is. So let's think about what we can do. And I cannot claim to be an expert on this, but what I've been hearing and thinking about is thinking about different ways of experimenting with you know, I'll, I'll give some specific examples about like what you could do like in meetings and stuff. But mm-hmm. one thing broadly I've been thinking about is that all right, so we don't see each other, you know, daily, maybe at the, like in the break room or something. But if we're on Zoom. We are in our homes, right? And right. I actually read a Wall Street Journal opinion piece where the person said it was time to get professional and, you know, make sure our pets weren't in the house, hide all our children.
0: Oh, here we go. Right? Here, like, right? here we go. <laughs> and I thought, how sad.
1: Wow. What I'm thinking is we have an opportunity here that, you know, having a family or a pet or a basement office or a child, it's not that's not unprofessional. That's your humanity. Right. And yes, that's how we connect with people. And, you know, if we have time, we can talk about this. But one of the biggest reasons that we have negative interactions is because we see people as outside our circle. And so yes. here, right, we're in our homes, like, I will tell you that I was in a meeting and someone's cat showed up. And I <laughs> smiled I was like, I can't believe he has a cat. I have to say I saw him in a very positive and different way. Right? Yes. Like the way he looked at his cat. Um, I was like, Oh, right. that's a sight I didn't see. And so maybe having less panic about this, and seeing this remote work, if we're on zoom, as an opportunity. To connect with each other beyond what are we accomplishing, like we would at work, it's just more visual. Connecting with them, asking questions, showing empathy—I I think that's one way. Another, though, completely opposite on this is that there is some research that says that um, just in terms of like the Zoom or the uh, conferencing on video, that yes. we have we have this belief that to be engaged, we have to be on camera, right?
0: (laughs) Yes. Or or we're
1: not on camera. And, you know, I get it. Like I've given talks where I couldn't see anybody. It does feel a little strange, but what they find is that it's exhausting to be on camera for for women in particular,
0: Mm -hmm. because
1: there's a lot of pressure around appearance and you already feel the um, like I'm the mom or I'm a woman at home. Like that's really salient. And so you want to feel like you need to minimize that for yes. groups with anyone with like lower status in the organization may feel uncomfortable. Maybe their house is different, you know, whatever it is that, you know, you feel lower power being on camera. So Dr. Ali Gabriel um, at Arizona, fabulous research. She found that actually people who in these categories who had their cameras off had more voice, more connection and more Mm -hmm. engagement during meetings, which completely counters the wisdom of we have Mm -hmm. to keep them on. So I love that. Like if you're thinking about that for people, right? Like, okay, what position are they on? We are not. It's kind of like that thing about what are you hearing? Are you listening? What are you seeing? What are you not seeing? Right. And so thinking about that for people um, that actually you can have more connection um, with the cameras off. (laughs) Um, But, you know, then even in things like, okay, so we've had to try to get really creative and I think there are creative ways that we can use technology. So for example, there is software that I use sometimes in my meetings where Mm -hmm. it's it's anonymous, which I really like. And I'll ask people like, okay, what are we worried about? Sometimes people don't want to say what they're worried about. And it's really interesting. It'll um, display on the screen. It could be like a word art or it could be a bar chart or just a flow of words. And then this leads to a great discussion because people see what other people are thinking. And they're less afraid to share their own concerns now because it was anonymous at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. We've had I've done sessions where I ask people to just say, hey, what's what's a win we had this week? What happened that was good? I've been in meetings where people, you know, and at first it's that thing where you're like, I don't want to do this, but it's where we just went around and we all shared what was going on. And then you picked the next person yourself, right? In the Zoom box. So these are small things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. My manager sent us for one of our first meetings, a box of work stuff for our meeting. And it was very, it was like coffee cup with a tea bag. I mean, it's just like really well thought out little things like that. So I do, I'm definitely not an expert on here. I, I feel like though, if we can keep opening our hearts and and our minds to ways in which we can still connect, it doesn't have to be the way it was. We can be creative with technology. Right. We can think about how we're using it, or we could even do, um, sometimes I take walking meetings now on my phone. Right. So I'm walking around, yeah. they're walking around and we discuss what we need to discuss at work. But it feels like, oh, we're both out for a walk and talking like we used to be just, I mean, small things right. like that. hmm. hmm.
0: Yeah. No, thank you for that, uh, because you are indeed an expert um, <laughs> in terms of mindfulness at work and this notion of expanding upon our broader understanding around micro-interventions. And and let me walk backwards to iterate on a couple of things before I ask you uh, the next few questions. So, of course, as you well know, um, you have more intimacy with the research around micro-interactions than I do. But, you know, there was this period pre-pandemic of what I called like the sizzle reel on this particular topic. You know, the power of, you know, the big power of small, you know, and Mm -hmm. kind of all these things that I felt were more um, focused on the corporate sector, more, more focused on, you know, something that you had outlined was kind of this outward projection of self that was very orchestrated. Right, and so right. although we were talking at first about yeah, you know, you know, the you can do incrementalism and small steps, and you can do small things, and it can have big impact, it was still bound to non-humanistic uh, metrics of productivity,
1: <laughs> right?
0: Okay, right. And and there is a lot of um, pushback. I'm starting to see Michelle like on the internet and everything else around the, the so-called code of productivity how it, you know, in some ways has helped to catalyze the great resignation and, and the loss of positive micro interactions, right? And so in this grind to, quote unquote, be more productive, even within COVID, some people are, are communicating this real sense of loss and this real sense of, um, or a real sense of disconnection to others, and some of the examples that you just shared I thought were really neat ways that, you know, in spite of technology, there can still be that important human connection to keep us, you know, together and to make us feel as if we're still um in some ways whole in relationship mm-hmm. to others. And I just find that so interesting. Yeah.
1: You know, one if I can, I wanna one thing I came across I, I've used, um, it's work by Dr. Stephanie Creary and mm-hmm. she's at Wharton and she has this thing where she says, you know what, what can I do to connect and develop across relationships? You know, mm-hmm. what's one mm-hmm. small thing I can do. And it relates to this feeling like you were talking about this, like the burnout and the lack of humanity. And so, She talks about leaping across boundaries Mm -hmm. and really thinking about, okay. first of all, she has and I and I've run this where you think about another person that you're paired up with or that you're thinking about that you can do it at work. It's very easy. And you you think about this other person first before you're talking and you you think about how are we where do we share common ground? and it could be really some, I mean, and it should be simple. It should be like, okay, we both like skiing or whatever. We're both in marketing. And then where, where are we different? You know, where do I see differences? And then you think about what is one way you think you can help and support that person? And what mm-hmm. is one mm-hmm. way you think they can help and support you? Mm. And, it's a, mm-hmm. and then it's about a 15 minute exercise that we do and it is really powerful this notion of kind of this leaping across differences kind of acknowledging okay you're in this spot i'm in this spot here's where we're like linked and with these differences i actually might be able to help you with something and you can help me with something and so Mm -hmm. we're not only connected through just humanity but Through our ability to support one another, and I don't know, I love this exercise. I've run it many times. Again, it's not mine; it's Dr. Puri's. But this leaping across boundaries and thinking about what what is one thing I can do, and maybe even thinking what is one thing I can do to support someone else, and how do I think they can support me? And I kind of like that flip of it, like because you're not just saying I'm going to help you, right? It's also saying you have something so valuable there too. And that I could really use your help, which sometimes I think can be missing, um, in the ways that we help people.
0: Oh, I'm not yeah. sure if that answers your question agree. at all,
1: but I was,
0: <laughs> I no, it went, totally did. I mean, you know, it's just, it's so many, you know, divergent thoughts kind of swirling in my head yes. as I'm listening to you talk. Uh, but it's so really interesting that, um, we are I feel like we're making space in the academy for humanity to be brought to the foreground and not suppressed in the background yeah. and so much of what you're sharing really um makes me joyful yet the, you know there's also still the situational reality for so many who are not feeling that humanity is being foregrounded right in the ways right. in which many of us would like for it to and I specifically think of. You know, colleagues of color. You know, people who. Um, and I was thinking about something you had said earlier in terms of having cameras off and and people being judged on what their Zoom display is within their household. All of those pieces. And while there is definitely the idea of not bringing so much formality to engagements, even within a video conferencing space people of color are still feeling a lot of professional pressure you know regardless as to where they work i know you've seen some of the um emerging research on this since COVID. you know so there are the COVID impacts and then there's still this kind of as one colleague had identified it to me michelle there's still so-called room rater pressure Room Raider being um, this uh, Twitter handle that judges people on their backgrounds. <laughs> Gives oh, my you like goodness. A yes, one. i yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's like you get a one to ten. And, and while um, they are only rating individuals in the public eye, there are some people who believe that the, that practice has trickled over into the higher education workplace and to other sectors, workplaces where people are judging people's spaces, right? right? Right. And when you were talking about the Wall Street Journal op-ed, where it was saying, get the cats and the kids out of the room, yeah. <laughs> you know, to me, I'm like, yeah, the, there's something there, right? And so I'm really interested in hearing from you, you know, how do we figure out a more humane way to balance that and to kind of stop some of these practices of judgment and to shift them towards positive micro interactions Um, because i just think that so many people still are feeling stressed and feeling a need to put on performance even in a virtual space a a virtual workspace
1: yeah i think that's a really tough question um Mm -hmm. it's like so important and i want to have really great answers and I'm feeling of pressure. <laughs> like maybe I don't, Uh-oh. but but I mean, I think I have. This is something I've thought about too. Like, you're there's already pressure, and then feeling kind of protective of yeah. your space and personal space. Um, and then one more thing to be judged on. is terrible. And I, my doctoral student actually is doing um, looking at grief. That is her dissertation topic. Mm -hmm. And um, she specifically looked, no, she was not looking at race. She was looking more and she was not looking at diversity. She was looking more at loss from, but it could be loss from anything. So it it was broader in how grief intrudes into our daily lives through these pangs these constant Mm -hmm. reminders. And I I think one of the interesting things she found was just how frequent things that are, that may seem tiny, these little reminders or digs that you've either lost something and that that loss has somehow made you different or that you are different from your colleagues Mm -hmm. Um, and the way that has hurt engagement. And the one thing that she is optimistic about is there is a movement kind of towards I think there's you know there is this pro I do hear what you're saying on the code of productivity I see it that it's like this oh now that we've lost productivity we somehow superhumanly have to do even more with less like this compassion um, this need for compassionate responding and compassion in the workplace but that has, I I think one of the problems we're struggling with, if you think about everybody feeling kind of stressed out, you need the people higher up to kind of take their mind a little bit off the bottom line, for a little bit.
0: Yes. Yes. Mm
1: I'm not saying let things, you know, (laughs) just go, you know, in a handbasket somewhere, but let's take our eye off that and let's think about the people who are working with us, working for us, supporting us in terms of a compassionate lens and, and having compassionate responses and recognizing what is going on in people's lives. But I don't know exactly how to get people there, like mm-hmm. leaders mm-hmm. like that. I feel like is a like I, I can talk about like leaders stopping abusive practices, but that's a little different. Um yeah you know how do you get people to hear, even if I think of I live in Minneapolis, and
0: I mean'm
1: not even sure where you live, but probably mm-hmm. Minneapolis seems to be in the news everywhere, um, yes. in every state yes. for the high amount of racial injustice and harm, and then going to work. For people in that context, and not having, not recognizing that people don't leave what's happening out in the world right around them, like they don't step into work, and then that doesn't matter anymore. And Mm -hmm. I think for some people, they they don't recognize that grief and pain in their own colleagues. And I don't think leadership sometimes realizes there are people that are stuffing their feelings of grief. At mm-hmm. what they see around them every day, and we work. We spend most of our time at work, if you really think about it. And right. Yep. I personally believe, like the stakeholder. Excuse me, stakeholders. We have all always talk about who are our stakeholders. I personally believe the stakeholders of the workplace are the community too that you live in,
0: and mm. so mm-hmm.
1: these are your stakeholders, right? And so, what are you doing? To recognize what's happening. What are you doing to lighten the load for some people? What are you doing to make it okay to take some time off to have space? I don't, and I honestly do not have the answers, obviously, but I have, um, these are just things I've been thinking about with the, and I think it's really challenging.
0: It is challenging, or it maybe it's not. We just don't do it. I don't know. That's the other thing. Like, what if it, <laughs> well, <have> you- <laughs> there's that with some individuals too. But but my last question really touches on something that I think is so critical um, that you struck upon in your last response, Michelle, and that is this idea of compassionate leadership. So if you could leave us with a definition of what that looks like. How could passionate leadership express itself successfully um, in the workplace? I'm really interested in hearing your perspective on that.
1: I think it is a leader who has the ability to have empathy for the people that are working with them. And as a side note, I would say empathy can be learned. Like it's, yes, we might be born with a little more, but we can learn it. Uh, We can learn it through mind. We can learn it through mindfulness. Even Um, there are mindfulness practices for empathy. It is a leader who is humble in some ways, and views their role as supporting people, the people that work for them. So that leader, yes, they care about production, et cetera, but they also recognize that healthy people are one of the best ways to do that but beyond that they have empathy for excuse me alexia my cat just jumped on my oh, so
0: speaking of cats <laughs> i'm surprised mine hasn't disrupted the uh <laughs> podcast because that typically happens every time i do a podcast
1: <laughs> i mean of all the irony he's running around meowing at me of course um, of course so, okay, I'm off track. Yeah, so, okay, empathy, your goal, you have empathy for others. You see, you hear them, and your job as a leader is not to simply tell them what to do, but it is to be supportive and making sure that they have what they need. They have the resources they need to do their job. And those resources mm-hmm. can vary. It, doesn't, it can be training, yes, but when I, I think here I'm really talking about do they have the emotional resources that they need to do their job? Do they have the interpersonal resources? And if not, why not? And what do I need to do to support that person in the best way I can? And and recognizing and expressing. I think the other thing when we tend to get tight and um, stressed out in our work lives, I think we stop really appreciating people and thanking them. and really recognizing what people are going through um, and connecting with them on that. Like, thank you. Like, I know this, you know, something really simple, but we know really simple expressions of gratitude that are not just an email where you're like, thank you, you know, for doing these things, but true expressions where you acknowledge what people have been doing and why mm-hmm. it's made a difference and recognizing that they've been doing incredible things under tremendous pressure. Um I'm rambling again, but yes, that is what I'm thinking with compassionate leadership.
0: (laughs) Thank you. You were not rambling (laughs) at all. This was a delightful conversation. Michelle, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to our Toward Inclusive Excellence Spring Semester Podcast with Dr. Michelle Duffy, the Vernon Heath Chair in the Department of Work and Organizations in the Carlson School of Management at the University of Minnesota. I encourage you to sign up for reminders of new content releases, sign up for our newsletter, follow us on Twitter and on LinkedIn. Thank you so much for your time and support. Be well.